Thank you so much for having me and for the kind words. <laughs> so there are a few different uh, things that brought me down this path. First, first, I had always sort of been interested in the idea of uh, political violence as, as performance, that there's some sort of a, a distinction between what's really happening, if there even is an objective reality, and how they're constructed either by the perpetrators themselves or in a political sphere. Uh, so I had actually been developing a proposal to look at uh, political communications in particular uh, in, the, in the war on terrorism to see how governments could speak about uh, their counter-terrorist activities to either increase or decrease popular support for the policies that they were taking. And I was going completely down this path when I was a research assistant uh, on, a, on a project that uh, looked at the Monterey WMD terrorism database, which I rely on heavily in my dissertation that I actually ended up pursuing. Uh, and in that database, they include all sorts of terrorist events uh, related to chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear terrorism activity. And importantly, they also included a bunch of information on terrorism hoaxes. Uh, and so I had been working on on using this database for for the project that I was an RA on, and we were all talking and, and thought, 
wow, there's a lot of data here. And everyone who uses this database sort of looks at it, but no one's ever paid attention to it. Um, so as part of my, the perks of working on that project was that I had access to this data set that I was allowed to use for my own personal research. And I had, I had developed a, a research project for a, a class on quantitative uh, research methods where I looked at CBRM terrorism and I, I wanted to test the technological determinism hypothesis, the idea that the more readily available uh, materials or knowledge are, the more likely terrorists would be to use uh, that kind of, uh, that terrorist tactic. So normally technological determinism is discussed in relation to nuclear terrorism or uh, nuclear attack. But I had broken it down and said, well, we can test it with respect to chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear terrorism. And I, I separated the sample and I said, well, we would assume that if this hypothesis is true, it's going to be most true for real terrorist attacks where they're actually using the, the materials and the knowledge. And for hoaxes, it probably wouldn't have any bearing because hoaxers can invent whatever they want. It doesn't have to be based in reality. And the outcome of that project was actually the opposite. I found that there wasn't really so much of a link between serious terrorism and the, the availability of knowledge and materials because the terrorists were effectively really opportunistic and they were using whatever was available to them, but that there was a really close alignment between what was theoretically plausible and what hoaxers intended to do. And that was really counterintuitive to me. Uh, but it basically went, it gave me the impression that, well, hoaxers are trying to be believed. And if policymakers are buying into the technological determinism hypothesis and hoaxers are actively designing fake incidents to look like the attacks that would be likely in such a world, well, then there's something there. And it was basically that finding combined with my interest in that kind of difference between reality and not reality uh, that led me to go down this path. Well, there are, for based on observational data, it's really hard to distinguish, actually it's impossible to distinguish uh, from a, an intentional hoax that, that the perpetrator intended to be carried out as such and uh, a failed attack. Um, I do sort of give terrorists the benefit of the doubt and assume that if we're observing something that looks like an attack, or like looks like a hoax, sorry, that it was intended to be a hoax and not a horribly bungled, serious uh, attempt. So for example, um, when pieces of um, uh, explosives are found but without a detonator, uh, it could be because the terrorists didn't know that a detonator was required to make an explosive explode, but it could also be a hoax that was intended to trigger a reaction by bomb-sniffing dogs, but that they didn't actually ever mean for it to explode in reality. In my, in my dissertation, I pretty much looked at all groups um, 
that, that are captured in terrorism database. I had slightly restricted the sample, but we, we can come back to that later if, if it becomes relevant. But what I found are the groups that are most likely to use hoaxes are any group that lacks hierarchy. If there's no uh, leadership in particular, um, those groups uh, are likely to engage in hoax activity. Uh, and also uh, single issue groups, uh, in particular those that um, have an environmentalist, uh, anim animal rights or anti-abortionist sentiment. Uh, although we have some issues with uh, limited data availability in terms of being able to disentangle the effect between those two. So there are a number of, of different explanations. The one that I think may be the most plausible uh, is that there, in those kinds of groups, there are principal agent problems. So taking a, a further step back, part of the reason why hoax use by terrorist groups is, is puzzling is because a hoax undermines the group's credibility. If you're, if the whole point of terrorist activity is is costly signaling to to flex your muscles and show your power, then carrying out a fake attack that will sooner or later be identified as a fake attack uh, diminishes that per persona that a group is likely actively trying to build. So, when a group lacks hierarchy, when there's no leadership, there's no centralized command and control, uh, anyone can carry out whatever attack they want to attack uh, to carry out uh, even if it runs counter to the to the group's general modus operandi um, so uh, and, and where that dovetails with the the single issue motivations I mentioned earlier is there might be individuals who support a group's cause but who otherwise aren't fully radicalized to violence or who aren't fully committed to the use of violence to support their their ideological objectives so when you have a non-hierarchical group and you have any individual who can effectively opt in and say hey i'm carrying out this attack in the name of the animal liberation front for example then a group or then an individual who otherwise wouldn't want to carry out a serious bombing, can carry out their hoax bombing uh, in that group's name. Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I, I can't uh, recall, maybe you can think of an example where a group has actually come out and said, we did this as a hoax because X, Y, Z, but there are hoaxes themselves that are false claims of responsibility of a real attack or, or a claimed attack that something happened. So uh, when, when I talk about hoaxes, there's three subcategories that I talk about. There's a hoax device where there's something physical that's been found, but it's it's actually benign. It's meant to imitate a real weapon, a hoax warning that's either some sort of an 
empty threat about future activity or a lie about past activity. For example, like we placed a bomb in X location and it will explode, but of course there is no bomb actually placed. And then the third category is a, a hoax claim of responsibility where the group would claim responsibility for an attack that it didn't commit. So when we see the claims of responsibility, it's not claiming responsibility for the hoax, it's a false claim of responsibility for something that actually occurred. So it could either be a terrorist attack that was carried out by another group or even just a benign uh, explosion that happened because of a natural cause or, or, or whatever. But the group says, oh, no, it wasn't an accident. We actually did that intentionally. There are a number of plausible explanations. Uh, in this case, in the Las Vegas shooting, uh, it would most likely be to try to project power and say they had reach where they likely didn't. Uh, if it were a, a, an incident that were perpetrated by another terrorist organization, it could affect the relative balance of power. So even if it's not believed necessarily that the the group that claimed the attack carried it out, it reduces the confidence that the group that did carry it out actually did. So it affects the relative balance. Uh, and especially when there are groups that are competing for, for the same audience, if one wants to look like it's more powerful than it is, it can, it can try to appropriate another group's attacks. I didn't, in my research, I haven't really uh, introduced a temporal element, but some others have, Charles Mahoney in particular at uh, USC Long Beach, and, and he suggested that hoaxes are likely at those stages in a campaign where they're not going to have the same audience costs that they might otherwise have, which he defines as either being really early in a group's campaign or at the end of a group's life cycle as a sort of legacy act. Uh, and the idea is that early in a group's campaign, they just want to get their voice out there. They want they want people to notice them. And if they don't necessarily have the resources or, or the capability to carry out a serious attack, a hoax attack is a way to just get that publicity that they're seeking. And at the flip side of that, uh, a group that was once very powerful and has a reputation for having been able to carry out a bunch of serious attacks, even as their capability declines, they can carry out a kind of legacy hoax to, to maintain their relevance and to say, hey, we're, we're still here. Um, but there's a, a challenge in that respect as well, because uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's hard to tell the difference between what's actually a hoax and what's a failed attack, but it's also hard to tell what's a hoax perpetrated by 
the group that supposedly carried out the hoax and what's a false claim that an unaffiliated individual has made. So particularly when a group is is very popular and, and has a reputation for being very lethal, any prankster can claim that they've carried out an attack in that group's name. Uh, and uh, in my dissertation, I looked in particular at the uh, FLQ, the Front de Libération du Québec, which is uh, the most prolific terrorist group in Canadian history, uh, also the most prolific hoaxers. But in, in the data that we have, there are some hoaxes that were supposedly uh, carried out by the FLQ after the FLQ ceased to exist. And the only explanation in that case is that someone, for whatever reason, was just leveraging the, the FLQ's reputation to get some attention and cause some disruption. So I've always looked at hoaxes as a mode of terrorism. Usually in the literature, it's considered an alternative tactic. So for example, a, a terrorist can carry out a, a bombing attack, a shooting attack, or they can hoax. When I say I'm, I'm looking at hoaxes as a mode of terrorism, it's not an alternative tactic, but rather a way that the terrorism is being carried out. And, and I use the word mode to draw from the grammatical uh, analogy of, of a mode or, or a linguistic mood. So uh, in English, for example, we have the indicative mode that explains what you are doing. It's a, a fact. But we also have the subjunctive that has a kind of element of incorporeality uh, to it or, or a hypothetical almost. Um, so I, I consider hoaxes kind of subjunctive terrorism uh, because they're linked to the to the tactic that exists in the kind of indicative form. I don't know if this is getting too too abstract and out. It most certainly does. And so basically every uh, tactic in the terrorist's repertoire can be sort of can be considered as a verb. So you can have a bombing, but you can have a subjunctive bombing, the hoax bombing. You can also have a suicide bombing. The basic act is still a bombing, but the fact that it was carried out by an individual who had to die uh, in order for the attack to be carried out qualifies it in a certain way or to make it subjunctive or sorry suicide uh, i also consider suicide to be a mode of terrorism like hoaxes it, it changes how we understand the the basic act or the weapon that was employed but it still links it together so if you're considering a suicide bombing as an alternate tactic from a 
uh, a regular bombing or a hoax bombing, well, the the emergency response is the same in the immediate aftermath, whether it's actually happened or if it's just believed to have happened or if the person died or if the person didn't die. So when we're talking about large end terrorism data sets, when these kinds of incidents are treated separately, we're only getting a part of the picture and, and we're seeing them as separate phenomena. Um, whereas, especially from the perspective of societal response, all the, the tactic in all of its different forms should be considered together. So hoaxes, uh, when they're, if they're being used strategically, can be used to complement serious activity in a number of different ways. The, the most obvious would be, as you mentioned, the dry run. So, for example, uh, if the terrorists didn't want to risk actually carrying out an attack before they found out how people would respond to it, they could place a, a fake bomb in a certain location, see how long it takes to to be identified, where the responders come from, how many people are going to be at a, at a location at a certain time. Uh, so it's, in a sense, it could be partially the practice run, but also used to collect some intelligence as some, a form of reconnaissance uh, for the terrorist group. Uh, it could also be used um, to kind of drown out serious activities. So say, for example, and I keep using the example of bombs just because it's, it's an easy one, say, say a group wanted to, um, to to distract the authorities, to spread the response capabilities very thinly, but they only had a certain amount of resources to carry out one serious bombing. Well, they could place a number of fake bombs around a city uh, that would be identified earlier so that responders wouldn't be in a location where, or able to respond to a location where a real bomb was set. hundred percent. So I already mentioned kind of the uh, ideological reasons or incomplete radicalization to violence explanation. But there are a number of reasons why uh, a group might 
actually prefer to carry out a less violent attack. It's not always just the a hoax isn't always kind of the quote unquote poor man's terrorism. Uh, and in some groups, carrying out a, a hoax is, is an intentional signal of restraint to kind of say, hey, we're here and maybe to disrupt society without destroying it. And I actually think I, I borrowed those words from your paper with John in 2011, if I, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. And, and that language really, uh, that re language really resonated with me uh, because not every terrorist group is out there to cause widespread destruction. And even if they do want to carry out violent acts at some points in their campaign, there may be other points where it's preferable to uh, to actually show their restraint and try to build legitimacy. Uh, and one of the hypotheses I, I tested explicitly was that ethno-nationalist groups would be particularly likely to use hoaxes in this way, um, because when you're trying to position yourself as a legitimate alternative uh, to the the political system, uh, carrying out crazy acts of violence doesn't uh, doesn't really suit the cause. It's not morally consistent. But saying, look, we have the the ability to to carry out an attack, but we're not going to because we care for your lives. That's actually a, a way of bolstering the message that they might be trying to pursue. Part of part of the challenge is, I mean, some some hoaxes are clearly not credible. Um, uh, but when a hoax is presented as credible, it has to be responded to as such. And it, depending on the nature of the hoax, it can be a few minutes to a few hours to even a few days until it's actually discovered that there isn't a real threat there. So hoaxes, even though no one actually dies, actually are harmful to society because they force, they, they drain responder resources and they take attention away from serious attacks that are occurring. So even though they're effectively benign, it's not something that we, we want to happen with, with regularity, uh, especially because uh, copycats are prevalent in the history of, of hoax activity and, and serious terrorism activity. An incident occurs and we see numerous incidents that follow the same contours in the immediate aftermath perpetrated by other individuals who realize, oh, 
it's really easy for me to actually do this and I can get some attention. I can cause some disruption. Um, on the non-credible side of things, you have the school kids who pull the fire alarm or call in a bomb hoax the day of their final exams, but you see it happen once and then you see it happen in different schools in the days following. Uh, so there's a challenge between balancing the need to respond and treat it as if it's a, a real attack in the immediate aftermath versus not wanting to get the the knowledge that it's occurred out there so that others can can imitate it. I think there's a little bit of both. The first is as terrorism studies was, was kind of booming, there were more important topics to address. Uh, before you figure out why groups don't want to kill people, it's kind of, uh, it's uh, imperative to figure out why they're using the more lethal forms. It makes sense to me that scholarly and political attention went first toward uh, other forms of, of terrorist activity. Uh, but when it does come to... Uh, to just sort of the challenges in studying hoaxes, the data is a problem. Um, I found, well, observational terrorism data sets in general suffer from a number of, of limitations in, in their own right, let, but they're magnified when we're talking about hoaxes. Uh, for example, if we're talking about data sets that are based on media reporting, well, we're going to have extra problems when we're looking at media reporting of hoax events. First of all, hoax events are less newsworthy than serious attacks, so they're going to be underrepresented to start with. There's also going to be a high degree of misinformation in what's reported, um, especially if you're looking at information reported in the immediate aftermath of, an, of a hoax being uncovered versus uh, or versus before it was uncovered as a hoax. So even when we do have data, there are questionable details. And it's really hard in many cases to identify a perpetrator because there aren't the same traces that are being left when a perpetrator carries out a serious attack. So we're under identifying hoaxes and we're having trouble figuring out who did them and, and any details about the hoaxes. Uh, it makes it a challenge to then rely on this kind of data to, to develop coherent findings. And usually what happens in, in academic studies what, that rely on data sets that do include hoaxes, they say, okay, yes, we acknowledge that this data exists that covers hoaxes, but we're just not going to talk about that because uh, either because no one died and we're care we care about the serious attacks or because we just don't trust the, the reliability of the data.
Well, I have uh, a few pieces of advice. The, the first one, well, I tried to correct for all the limitations in the data. Um, and because I knew that there were problems with the event level, I rolled everything up into group-based analysis. So rather than trying to look at a specific events, I looked at was a group on general, in general, a group that ever used hoaxes or not. And I cross-referenced a, a handful of different samples of terrorist uh, events rolled up to the perpetrator level and found that when, when you roll it up to the group level, you actually do a good job of identifying hoaxers versus non-hoaxers, even when there are sometimes substantial discrepancies at the event level. Um, the, pro the, the disadvantage there is it's interesting, and, and I got some interesting findings out of that kind of group-based analysis, but the real value would be figuring out how to identify between a specific hoax event and a serious event, because of course that's going to be the best uh, guide for, for emergency responders uh, and security services. Uh, so in that respect, anything that can that can improve the the nuance of data collection will be advantageous and probably uh, more qualitative studies would be uh, with with more narrow scope as opposed to all terrorist groups worldwide over a 50 year period as, as I tried to do in my dissertation focusing more narrowly on a specific campaign context or even at the country level um, would would do a better job. So my my case study was largely inconclusive, but I, I think that's part of the the biggest takeaway was that a group can hoax for many different reasons over the course of its career or over the course of its campaign. And there's no one explanation for hoax activity writ large or even one particular strategic logic to define a particular group. So it is important to to look at different uh, moments in a group's campaign separately and to not try to roll it up into one say, single, neat, clean package. Um, but what I did find happened a lot with the FLQ was incidents would happen in, in, in clusters 
around um, a serious attack would take place. And then it would be followed by a bunch of hoax attacks that repeated similar elements. So I mentioned the um, explosives with, without detonators. Well, there had been a, a mailbox bombing uh, where a, a bomb had exploded inside a mailbox and subsequently a number of pieces of, of dynamite were found as hoaxes within within mailbox across the province of, of Quebec. Um, another similar cluster was um, a, a bombing at an armory. And then there, there were subsequently a number of bombings at armories uh, in similar locations. And it's the idea that once the attack is demonstrated, a hoax could actually get a fair bit of bang for its buck because it was believed. It was all of a sudden plausible. It was in, in the public's mind that an attack could be carried out like that. So when the hoax was initially uncovered, well, sorry, not, not uncovered, when, when the incident that the hoax intended to portray was, was uncovered, it was believed as, as a real attack until it was investigated and, and proved otherwise. Exactly. So I, I actually didn't find any evidence of a, of a dry run in the FLQ's campaign. It always the other way around. I didn't really look into any specific campaign uh, in detail like that, but what I did find was on average, on a whole, a group would be more likely to hoax if it carried out at least three serious attacks uh, in addition to its its hoax. So I, I didn't get into the, the details of the, the qualities of the hoax versus the serious attack, but it was the idea that every group perpetrator that carried out hoaxes was also significantly more likely to have carried out more than three serious attacks. And the ones that carried out fewer than three attacks were unlikely to ever use hoaxes. Yeah, it's effectively the logic of a mixed strategy that a group's going to hoax and carry out serious activities with a defined probability so that the counter-terrorists are going to respond because they know that this group can carry out serious activity as well. So when the hoax comes, they, they assume that it Maybe not that it is for sure going to be real, but at least that it could be, and they're not willing to take the chance that it's a false, or they're not willing to assume that it's going to be a, a hoax.
So that's actually one of the, the things that really intrigued me about hoaxes was that based on the economic models of terrorism, you would assume that uh, tactics or incidents that don't involve a resource investment will happen with greater frequency. And when hoaxes don't involve material investments of resources, in theory, they should occur all the time. We should have an indefinite supply of hoax activity, but we don't have that because there are, uh, as you know, the, these other kinds of costs. So we've already mentioned kind of audience costs or, or the loss of perceived legitimacy. Um, that, that to me is, I think, the, the biggest uh, factor explaining why we don't see hoaxes happen more often uh, because uh, as I mentioned if, if they're going to hoax and it's going to be uncovered as, as a hoax eventually then their subsequent threats will bear less weight. Exactly. Thank you. So it, it undermines their their portrayal of power.
Thank you so much. <laughs>